Psalm 37, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over those who prosper over those who prosper in his ways, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do keep your Bibles open to Psalm 37, which we'll be looking at together this morning as we consider the beatitude that Steve read for us earlier. I think it's safe to say that we all like to be praised, that we all like to receive a bit of acclaim from time to time. We all like to have our talents pointed out. We all like to have our strengths affirmed. Truly, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this, with appreciating a compliment. I do wonder, though, how you would feel if I paid you this particular compliment, if I looked you in the eye and said, you, my friend, walk like an elephant. In 21st century Canada, that would probably be considered an insult. But there is a culture in this world that considers it a compliment. Why? Because that culture places high value on gracefulness, and they consider elephants to be especially graceful creatures. So if someone from that culture tells you you walk like an elephant, that person is saying you have a very elegant or you have a very dignified kind of bearing. What might be an insult to us would be a compliment to them. It depends on culture. There's another people group from another continent that might tell you, you are an old pot. Again, that would strike us as being a little bit odd, a little bit insulting, but in that culture, they say that the best food comes out of the oldest cooking pots. So what they're communicating when they say that is, you're a great cook. So again, one man's compliment is another man's insult. It all depends on culture. It's culture that frames our understanding of those traits that are desirable and undesirable, and therefore it's, it's culture that determines what's flattering and what's unflattering or offensive. So how about if I paid you this compliment? If I said to you, you are a meek individual. In fact, of all the people I've ever met, you are by far the meekest. Now, 21st century Canada, you would probably understand me to be saying something like, you are weak. You are a pushover. You are 
wishy-washy. You lack strength of character. But what if there is a culture where meekness, and meekness defined a little bit better than that, is considered one of the highest of all virtues? What if it's possible that a trait that so many of us would consider insulting is actually a very precious evidence of God's grace? Why don't you hang on to that thought as I remind you that over a number of Sundays, I've been leading us through the Beatitudes, those eight blessings we find at the beginning of Matthew 5, which is Jesus' introduction to his Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He has inaugurated this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, And in this sermon, he's describing its cultural values, at least in the beginning of this sermon. He's describing the cultural values of this kingdom. We've already looked at the first two of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we've learned that this kingdom values empty hands, admitting that we cannot save ourselves. And this culture values broken hearts, a deep sorrow over our sinfulness. Today we want to turn to the third beatitude, and we want to see something else that this kingdom values. We want to see that this kingdom values a quiet spirit. So the third cultural value of the kingdom of heaven is meekness. Now I understand that that this, this value might be a little bit like hearing you walk like an elephant, or a little bit like you are an old pot. We'll need to understand the culture of this kingdom in order to understand why, why this, why meekness is a good and desirable trait rather than a negative or undesirable trait. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus wants us to be meek. He calls his people to be the meekest of all people on the face of the earth. So today we will define meekness, and we'll also learn how we can display that trait. We'll learn that to be meek, and you've got this in your outline there. We must look ahead, we must look up, and we must look back. So first, we need to look ahead. If you want to be meek, you need to have a forward-looking faith. Now, I wonder if it would surprise you if I said that not all of the Beatitudes originated with Jesus. It's true, and it's true of this one. Jesus was drawing from King David here. He was drawing from Psalm 37, which Steve read for us. And really, we find that the first 11 verses of Psalm 37, they're an exposition of this Beatitude, though an exposition that had been written a thousand years prior to Jesus speaking his Beatitudes. So we need to look to that part of the psalm so we can see what was going on in Jesus' mind when he stood up there before the crowds and he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37 tells us how to cope when it seems like evil is winning. How to cope when it's clear that God's people are suffering. How does God call us to live in a world where so often the baddest people seem to enjoy the greatest success? And how does God call us to live in a world in which we've we've done what he said to do? We've heeded his summons. We've become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But then we found that 
our citizenship seems to bring us an extra measure of sorrow, an extra measure of suffering. With that in mind, listen to the opening words then of Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. Don't get all worked up when you see evil people rise high and gain power and gain prominence. Don't envy them. Don't long for what they have because their time will come to an end. Like the leaves on the trees that grow big and green in the spring and then drift to the ground in the autumn, they too, they too will fall in time. I wonder if you've noticed that God makes many promises that are afterward promises. I think, kids, I think you can understand this kind of promise, an afterward promise. Mom and dad might say to you, you just sit in the car quietly for this long drive and afterward you'll get to spend time with grandma, time with grandpa. Or go to sleep, go to sleep now and afterward in the morning it will be Christmas. They're saying just do something that can be difficult for a little while and afterward. Afterward, you'll see why we told you to do this. Afterward, you'll see that the wait was all worth it. On the last night of his life, Jesus was with his disciples, and he began to wash their feet, and he began to describe what was about to happen to him, and he told them this, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Many of God's promises are like this. They're promises that God makes today, but he fulfills in the future. And between the promise and its fulfillment, we need to have faith. We need to trust that afterward, God will prove true. And that's really what faith is. Faith is acting with confidence in the character of God, even when we can't yet see the reward that he has promised when we're faithful. And in this psalm, God makes an afterward promise. He says those evildoers, those wrongdoers, those people who have gained so much in this world will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So don't be anxious. Just wait with faith and and afterward, afterward you'll see. But this does raise a question. If the people who have, who have done so well in this world, the people who have gained all that this world has to offer, they've risen to the very heights of this world, if in the end they still end up with, with nothing at all, could there be hope for anyone? We'll look down to verses 10 and 11. These are the closing words of this little exposition of meekness in Psalm 37. And look for more of those afterward promises. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked people may rise to the very heights of this world. Meek people will rise to the heights of the next. Though evil people may hoard all the wealth of the kingdom of this world, Meek people will gain all the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, which is what we should expect. This is an upside-down kingdom, the kind of kingdom where the confident and assertive fall 
while the humble and lowly rise up. But we don't generally see this today, do we? We don't see it yet. We have to take this by faith. We have to believe this until afterward, until God's plan is complete, until God's time is right, and then, then we'll see. And so when we're faced with trials, when we encounter sorrow and suffering, when we wonder why it is that evil people seem to enjoy so many pleasures while we endure such hardships, the very first thing we need to do is just look ahead. To be meek, we must, must be forward-looking. We must have faith. We must have faith that while the meek may not inherit this world, they will inherit the next. That while the kingdom of this world may bring sorrow, the kingdom of heaven will bring endless, endless joy. Which is great, but surely meekness can't be only that. There must be more than just looking ahead to the future. There must be something we need to do today, some way we can respond today. And sure enough, between verses 1 and 11 of Psalm 37, between don't fret about wicked people and the meek shall inherit the land, we're given five actions that describe the behavior of a meek person. So we learn that to be meek, we don't need to merely look ahead, but we also need to look up. We need to take our eyes off ourselves. We need to take our eyes off our trials, off our problems, and we need to fix them on our God. So having looked, looked ahead, let's look up as well. Look at Psalm, verse, Psalm 37 and verse 3, where we see that meekness involves trust. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Meek people have a deep confidence in God, in the kindness of God's character, and in the goodness of his purposes. They are faithful to the God who has proven faithful to them. Whatever they observe, whatever they experience, they always trust in him. When times are good, they trust in God. When times are bad, they trust in God. When they experience joy and peace and ease, they're content When sorrows like sea billows roll, they're the ones who say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The meek person trusts. He trusts in the Lord. Second, meekness involves delight. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because we trust in God, we can also delight in God. We can find our joy and our satisfaction in him. We, We find that we don't need those things that may have been taken away from us. We find that we don't need those things that that delight the hearts of the people of the kingdom of this world. We find that all we really need is him. You may know that song that says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. The meek person finds his delight in God. Third, meekness involves committing. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. When we talk about committing our way to the Lord, we mean entrusting the Lord with our whole life. It means we'll accept God's will as being better than our will. We'll trust that his plans are superior to any plans that we may have made. 
We agree we'll we'll let go of anxiety. We'll let go of the need to protect our own reputation. We'll, We'll let go of the desire to be vindictive. We'll give all of that to him and we'll just leave it in his capable divine hands. As we sang, what he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. The meek person entrusts everything to God and just continues to obey him, continues to serve him, even through tears. Fourth, meekness involves stillness. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Be still. This kind of stillness is not rest. It's not sleep or inactivity. It's not waiting some mystical silence for God to whisper into your soul. This kind of stillness is patience before God and his providence. It's waiting quietly and patiently for the Lord to reveal his purposes and then to work them out in our lives and in the world. This kind of stillness, this kind of quietness is is resisting the urge to take matters into our own hands. Instead, it's waiting to see the hand of God. It's believing that even if we don't see justice or recompense today, even if we don't gain satisfaction today, we know that God will make all things right in the end. The song says, be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. The meek person waits with patience and confidence. Finally, meekness involves restraint. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. We always need to maintain self-control. We always need to refrain from outbursts of anger. And, And in this context, I think David is warning us especially never, ever to be angry at God. Now, I understand that it's trendy today to say it's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of authenticity for Christians to get angry at God for his providence. Very soon after my neck died, when my my heart was still so broken, my grief was still so raw, an old friend wrote to me and tried to, to guide me in my pain. She said, it's okay to be angry at God about this. It's okay for you to tell God exactly how you feel about him right now. Why don't you just rage against him? Why don't you scream at him if you need to? He's God. He can take it. You just let him have it. But how could I turn on my God? How could I charge God with wrong? How could I entrust God with my soul but not with my son? How could I think that my plans should stand against God's? How could I think that my counsel should prevail against divine counsel? How could I think that my purposes should be accomplished ahead of the purposes of the immortal, eternal, omniscient God? Never. God did no wrong. The God with the power to give is the God who has the right to take. God did nothing more than act within his authority within his jurisdiction. I'm grateful that God gave me grace in that moment not to turn away from him, 
but to turn toward him. Not to throw a tantrum, but to bow, to worship. There's a hymn that says, Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. My friends, we must endure every trial without rebelling against God. We can cry out in pain before God, but never in outrage against God. Even in our deepest distress, we must raise hands of worship rather than fists of rage. We must always have a settled confidence, a deep peace, a deep submission within our hearts, no matter our sorrow, no matter our suffering, no matter where God leads us. So what does it mean to be meek? As we've seen through Psalm 37, meekness is trusting and delighting and committing and submitting and and bowing to God. Meekness is the very opposite of self-assertion. The very opposite of acting as if my will should triumph over God's or even that my will should triumph over yours. It's the opposite of insisting that this world would be a better place if God and man alike just did things my way. And this kind of humility before God then works itself out in gentleness, patience before men. So the meek person remembers the first two Beatitudes. The meek person remembers that he came to God with empty hands. The meek person remembers he came to God with a broken heart. So of course then, he also has a quiet spirit. He's submissive before God and he's gentle toward others, especially in sorrows, especially in losses, especially when he's being led through the valley of the shadow of death. The meek person is gentle toward others even when he's insulted by them, even when he's scorned by them, even when he's harmed by them. He trusts that that even if he's distressed and he's bewildered today, afterward, afterward it will all become clear and afterward he, like God, will judge it all so very good, all so very wise, all so very necessary. A forest fire rages up north and we see the smoke of it blanket the sun even here all the way in the city. That fire passes through the trees and it seems to have left the land completely devoid of life. But no sooner has the fire gone out, no sooner has the ground cooled, that new sprouts begin to push up from the ground. There's life, there's beauty, even amid the ashes. That's you and me, Christian. When it seems like God's providence has scorched and burned us, we submit to his purposes. We submit to his providence and we display fresh evidences of his grace even in our sorrow, even with shattered hearts. We, meet, we act in meekness before our God. In the orchards outside the city here, the apple trees are bearing their fruit and people like you and me, we go into those orchards and we just ravage those trees. We pick them bare. Do the trees give up? Do they just shrivel up and die? No. They begin the process again so that at next year's harvest, we'll go back and they will once again be full of fruit. That's you and me, Christian. When people hurt us and harm us 
and take advantage of us. Even then we display the fruit of the Spirit. Even then, especially then, we act in meekness before our fellow man. When we're meek, we charge God with no wrong. When we're meek, we relate to other people with pity and with kindness and with forbearance. And always we're looking ahead. Always we're looking ahead with faith, knowing that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing us for a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison, beyond all comprehension. In other words, to be meek is to act like Jesus as he related to God and to man. And so since we've looked ahead and since we've looked up, we need to also look back. Look back to Jesus. To Jesus who was ultimately meek. To Jesus who perfectly fulfilled, perfectly exemplified the words of Psalm 37. Now here's a question. When did Jesus most display his meekness? Was it when he was laid in his cradle, unable to speak, unable to do anything more than cry? Was it when he was a child and he joyfully submitted to the authority of his parents? Was it later in his ministry when he gently opened the eyes of the blind or he he quietly raised the dead? It's actually a trick question. Jesus was never more meek and he was never less meek. He was always meek, just like he was always good, always humble, always loving, always perfect. He was always meek because he was always submitted to the will of God. He was always meek because he was always devoting his strengths and abilities to God's cause, always completely appropriate in his interactions with men. In every moment of his life, he trusted in his Father. He delighted in the Father. He committed himself to the Father. He was still before the Father, and he never once got angry at the Father, even when he was asked to lay down his very life. And so Jesus was meek when he called the disciples his friends. And Jesus was meek when he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He was meek when he reached out and healed the eyes that had been blind since birth. And he was meek when he made a whip of cords and drove money changers out of the temple. He was meek when he lay in a manger. He was meek when he hung on a cross. That tells us something important about meekness. Meekness does not mean just shrugging our shoulders at suffering, and especially the suffering of other people. We can be assertive, and we can be strong, and we can be forceful, even while resisting the arrogance of self-assertion. To resist shaking our fists at God doesn't mean it's wrong to extend a helping hand to another person. To believe that ultimate peace and justice are coming in the future does not mean we shouldn't work toward temporal peace and justice today. But it does mean we'll act with gentleness and with humility. See, meekness doesn't negate strength, but it directs that strength towards God's purposes, and then it constrains it in its expressions. Meekness is not weakness, it's strength. But it's strength that's submitted to God's will and that's used to further God's purposes. Really, there's no better example of meekness than the one we find in Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you turn there with me? Because in Philippians chapter 2, we see Psalm 37 expressed and fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Begin Philippians 2 verse 5 and keep an eye out there for submission to God. 
and the restraining of strength for the sake of God's purposes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the eternal Son of God humbled himself by being born into this world in a weak, mortal, human body, and even more so by allowing himself to be persecuted and crucified and killed. He bowed the knee to God the Father, and and he refused to assert his divine strength against what he knew was the Father's good, perfect plan. Jesus never grumbled against God the Father. He never shook his fist at the Father. He never lashed out unfairly against man. Blessed are the meek, those who are meek like Jesus. And what reward came to this meek man? You keep reading verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was awarded the kingdom of heaven by so perfectly submitting himself to the Father's will, by being so perfectly meek. So when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he was speaking first of himself. He was speaking first of himself, the one who was so perfectly meek through the deepest suffering and the one who inherited the kingdom of his father. And now Jesus asks us, you and me, to do no more than he's already done, to be meek. So as we're joined to him in repentance and faith, we can be like him. We can be meek through all that we encounter in this life, and we can inherit the kingdom that he now so graciously shares with us. All that is his becomes ours. Isn't there something within us that responds to this kind of meekness? In an age when we're so desperate for good and capable and selfless leadership, isn't it refreshing to see a leader who's gentle and lowly in spirit instead of one who's a a tyrant or a dictator or just plain self-obsessed? Isn't your heart drawn toward one who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He will take your sin and give you his righteousness. He will take your futile efforts and give you his rest. He will pluck you from the fires of hell and deliver you to the kingdom of heaven. So why wouldn't you respond to that kind of invitation from that kind of leader, that kind of savior? If you haven't yet become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what better invitation could there ever be than this? And what better time than right now? All he asks is that you admit your spiritual bankruptcy and come with empty hands, that you mourn your spiritual depravity and come with a broken heart, that you humble yourself before God and come with a quiet spirit. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Come into his kingdom. And Grace Fellowship Church, what would this little 
local church, this little cultural center of the kingdom of heaven, what would it look like if we all imitated Jesus in his meekness? We'd all be deeply submitted to God in our joys and in our sorrows. Our constant prayer would be, Father, glorify yourself through us, not what we will, but what you will. We would be kind in our marriages. We would gladly overlook offenses and we would love well even when we're not being loved well. We would be gentle in our parenting. We would exert our God-given authority with compassionate confidence. We would be attentive in our church membership. We would joyfully and deliberately carry out the spirit of the covenant that we've made to one another. As we'll see in the weeks to come, we would work tenaciously to ensure that mercy and justice are done within the church and outside of it. We would use our strength, our authority, our abilities, not first to benefit ourselves, but to serve one another. We would be a church full of people who act like Jesus, look like Jesus, love like Jesus. I'm unlikely to ever tell you, you walk like an elephant or you are an old pot. Bible doesn't much care if we walk gracefully or cook skillfully. But I do hope that this compliment, this praise, this evidence of God's grace can be said of you and of me and of each one of us. You, my friend, remind me of Jesus because you are so very meek. That might be an insult in the kingdom of this world, but that is among the highest of all compliments in the kingdom of heaven. May may it be true that each one of us is meek like our Savior, gentle and lowly and quiet in spirit like our Jesus. Amen. Let me pray that the Lord makes it so. And our Father, that is our prayer, that we would be gentle and lowly and quiet in spirit like your Son. We pray that we would be so submitted to your will, so committed to your purposes, so confident in your providence that no matter what comes, no matter what you ask us to do, no matter where you lead, our hearts would sing, whatever, whatever my God ordains is right. Let us be meek before you and before one another. Let us be kind and patient and forbearing. And let us commit our strength to serving others, to pursue mercy and justice and righteousness on earth. For as Jesus says next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father, let it be said of each one of us, you remind me of Jesus because you, like him, are so very meek. Amen.